welcome back to Relative Digressions. I'm Renna. And I'm Flick. And today we are going to be talking about The Invasion, which is a Patrick Troughton story. Flick, do you want to give us a brief summary of what it's about? So, it's a very archetypal story. It is a sinister industrialist has sinister allies who are giving him technology that will enable world domination. Shock reveal, it's the Cybermen. They don't really have a use for him. They're going to take over the world themselves. But he has foreseen this and developed emotional control technology. And the Cybermen are defeated in part by overwhelming their emotions and also by use of missiles and military technology. The relevance of which is, this is the first appearance of UNIT. But who are UNIT? I feel like everyone listening should know UNIT, but... There's a lot to say about UNIT. The inception of UNIT, which is part of a bigger picture here in WHO history about the introduction of recurring elements and the lead into the Pertwee era. Mm-hmm. First of all, Jamie and Victoria encountered the Yeti and the Great Intelligence in Tibet. It was big success. They brought them back, but this time they brought them to contemporary London. But as well as bringing back the the monster, it was a more direct sequel. They brought back the supporting cast of the original story, uh, in particular Professor Travers, who was the main supporting character in The Abominable Snowmen. They bring him back, they deepen him, they give him uh, a daughter, Anne, And for the first time there, we meet Colonel Lethbridge Stewart of the British military. And this worked really well. The great intelligence stories were a big success. And they got to thinking that they could, A, and this is probably a large part of it, save a lot of money if they had a a sort of recurring, grounded, contemporary Earth setting what a great idea for Doctor Who, a contemporary Earth setting to keep returning to. Right. And and because actually up until this point, if you look at the Troughton era, it does not return to Earth very much at all. Right. So part of it was about saving money, but also creatively, they thought it would be interesting to have developed recurring characters in a recurring time and place, which was Earth. Of the 1990s. Yeah. So they wanted to give it a little bit of distance from the present day. So it's sort of set in the 10 years in the future. Right, but also morally it feels very 60s. It is very 60s, except technologically. Sure. So the whole idea that we associate with John Pertwee of the unit era and the exile to Earth, that groundwork was actually being laid here in the middle of the Troughton era. Mm. I, I mentioned when we did The Mind Robber that behind the scenes they were not having fun. So whilst it doesn't show on the screen, they are getting ready to quit at this point. And so at this time when they were planning ahead more and more what they were going to do with the storylines, there was more and more uncertainty about who was around and when things would get done and how much episodes they would have. Oh, that's not so good. So Troughton never does end up getting that sort of fixed point home base. He goes to Pertwee. But it begins, well, it begins in The Abominable Snowman, then the first recurrence is the web of fear and then with the invasion you have a conscious let's keep going back to that well and developing those characters right the original concept would have had travers and Anne returning in this story but actually that doesn't happen 
Yeah, so that doesn't happen, although the general building up of a recurring setting does happen, that Colonel Brig... Colonel Brig? <laughs> Colonel... <laughs> Lethbridge Stewart. Lethbridge Stewart. Colonel Lethbridge Stewart will be brought back in this story. And and crucially, he has ascended to his correct rank. And crucially, he is now the brigadier of the newly formed unit. All of these characters, incidentally, were created by a pair of writers called Hazeman and Lincoln. Including the brig. Yeah, including the brig. Hazeman and Lincoln actually got paid for the characters that weren't included because essentially they had still included them but just changed the names. But the one who makes it to the story ends up becoming such an important part of Doctor Who. Which is the brig. Right, so we've not seen the brig directly, I think, in New Who. But we have seen, I think, at least two relatives of his. Is it Kate Lethbridge-Stewart? We've also seen in the, um, what's it called? Oh, oh, yes. Uh, Twice Upon a Time, the twist in Twice Upon a Time is that Archie is Archibald Lethbridge-Stewart. Right, exactly. And that's, I think, the appearances of of Brigley Lethbridge-Stewart in New Who. Although, also... And also, there's a bit with the Cyberman. Let's move on. (laughs) And also, I will say it, just for the benefit of it, in the end of Dark Water, the Brigadier's corpse gets turned into the Cybermen. It's not very good. We can't actually avoid mentioning Dark Water, because Dark Water makes several direct references to the invasion. Right. But the Brigadier is quite an interesting case. So we've met the Brigadier in The Five Doctors already. I like the fact that it's not just a let's bring back the characters. And already uh, in The Web of Fear... Travers is older than he was when we first met him, and now we meet his relatives. So already it was recurring, but it was also a developing. And I think that's what sets apart the unit era status quo from other recurring elements, is that they they have an arc. Yeah, exactly. Which is going to be something that, of course, the Doctor Who will do later in its existence in a different incarnation. It's super interesting, because I think we actually... I've only seen the second Doctor and the Brigadier interact Despite the fact I do remember talking when we talk about the five doctors about how the fact actually it's the Brigadier and the third doctor that's the iconic pairing. Yes, uh, and and we're going to get to that soon. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So, so there's not going to be a no shortage of Brigadier action. Um, I do like him as a character. Like you can see why he works really well in the show because he's a really interesting foil to the Doctor in terms of story. Like he's got a military bearing. In a sense, he is more like the character who should be the main character of a 1960s science action serial. Right, and so that's that's the interesting thing, is that um, in, in another serial, the Brigadier would be the protagonist. In this serial, he's not an antagonist, he's an ally, right? It's quite an interesting story role that he plays. There's never really... There's no antagonism. No, well, in fact, he, he will become more antagonistic over time, and it will come to a head and then be resolved... Right, because uh, there, there, of this. Like, there is real development across the unit era, and this is the start of the unit era. Right. So the brigadier is back, and he is now the brigadier, and unit is formed. The idea that we'll have this recurring group who are not just the military, but a Doctor Who specific creation, and we'll keep going back to them. Although I think it's really interesting that it's the United Nations Intelligence Task Force. So although whenever we see them, at least whenever I've seen UNIT, they're British. Yes, they're military, but they're more like peacekeepers than like... There there is lip service in other stories paid to the fact that they are international. It is very shallow in general. Yeah. This story is maybe the best story for, hey, UNIT are an international organisation. 
because at the end they go and they get the Russian space program involved in defeating the Cybermen. Right, which is super interesting if you consider the political context of, I mean, this is being broadcast in 1967, 68. Yeah. Because in very politically charged times, having the Russian missiles be the thing that saves the day. No, 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 no. It's not Russian missiles. The missiles are British. The space rocket is Russian. I, 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 yeah, I got a little confused at the end there, but I think my point still stands, right? Yes, I mean, like, definitely it was this idea of they are the United Nations Intelligence Task Force. They are international. And the British government actually fails them in the story because they are under the thumb of Tobias Thorne. Who is the villain of the piece. And it's the Russian space project who becomes their go-to to save the day. And you say that that's not a theme that they really hammer in future unit appearances. uh, Not really. It's a shame because I think you could do a lot with it, actually. It is ostensibly international, but the writers and producers basically forget that they're doing anything but the British military quite often. It's easy to forget, in fact, and I think they forget, in fact, that the brigadier is not the head of unit. Right. Uh, He's just someone... His rank comes from, what, the British army... And he's been seconded into unit or something. Yeah, so uh, in the classic series, the fact that he has to answer to other people does come up a lot. Kate, in the modern series, is really portrayed as just being the boss. Yes, although then maybe that's it. I mean, we don't know what the modern legal status of modern unit... Like, you could make it NATO attached in some sense. In a sense, I feel like that's what they meant. Yeah. Although, having said that, they go to the Russians. No, well, exactly. So they, they do go to the Russians, so it doesn't actually work. But in the real world, I think you can be in like the British Army or whatever. And actually, specifically, they feel very British Army and actually quite infantry. In the invasion, it also feels quite RAF, I think. Not least because they are in a Hercules bomber for their HQ. So uh, actually, something else just occurred to me when I, when I was mentioning Kate, which is that I think Moffat's unit owes more to this story than the Pertwee era. That's quite interesting. Uh, you you obviously are not quite in the right position to no, fully exactly, comment. No, exactly. Yeah, this. I can't. I can't because I, I. Yeah, exactly. I felt the unit in this felt like the unit broadly right. that I'd met. But but unit definitely changes, and there is some conceptual drift. And I feel like Moffat more directly goes back to the source here. And as we've mentioned, Dark Water in particular very directly references the invasion in many ways, including Cybermen outside St. Paul's Cathedral, which is the iconic image. But also, they have a base in a Hercules bomber. Right. Yes, of course. So, yeah, I feel like Moffat's unit is modelled directly on this story. Of course, Modern Who has disposed of the United Nations thing. It's now the Unified Intelligence Task Force. Right, which is nice because it sort of just it avoids the whole legal status of the brigadier problem. And actually, I, I think it is not a controversial statement to say that countries might have uh, like intelligence alliances, and so maybe that maybe that's what modern unit fits into. Yeah, quite interesting here is the fact that the brigadier goes to the defence ministry, and the defence ministry are under the thumb of Tobias Vaughan, the villain, and the brigadier says to the minister, well. I'll go to the higher-ups in unit who are seemingly above the British government. Right. But that makes sense if it's the United Nations, of course. Yeah, exactly. And and also, I think it's it's an interesting portrayal, which I suspect is to some degree accurate, of like the way in which the British Armed Forces, or related things, government, and like what is effectively, if you like, if not the defence industry in the case of International Electromatics Forms Company, like, you know, industry, right? Mm. So it's certainly true that... Uh, Kind of endemic corruption in the military procurement chain has always been a, a an issue. Yeah, I mean they, they fig leaf 
they aren't entirely skewering the government here because the minister has actually been hypnotized. But so, so there is like a fig leaf there of like, oh, the government wouldn't just betray us to industry. They've been they've been hypnotized by cyber technology. Right. Yeah. Uh, well, spoilers. <laughs> uh, not to get too hashtag political, but that that sometimes governments do do things in the interest of companies. I hear that sometimes they also uh, build mutantless Dalek drones to enforce the peace. <laughs> yeah. So like literally, as of recording this, the last who I watched was Revolution of the Daleks, which has an evil industrialist who produces a project with the help of the British government and thinks he's got it under control, but actually he doesn't, and it all goes horribly wrong. I've got to say, Tobias Vaughan is actually a deeper and more nuanced character than Jack Robertson. Right. What a character. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. More characters like this in Doctor Who. Um, you mentioned this is a very archetypal story. I mean, I mean, the, the, the Santana stratagem is, you know, there's an industrialist, right? And he has some allies, right? Uh, <laughs> you know, it's, it's not literally the same story. It is basically the whole Pertwee era as well. Like, the entire Pertwee era is, like, big industry is bad and also controls our government. It's not... I'm try, Off the top of my head, I feel like this isn't a big cliché yet, but it will become a big cliché in the not-too-distant future, uh, and who will never escape the orbit of that cliché? Indeed. I asked you if this trope had a name in who, because, of course, Base Under Siege has, has like, a name. Mm, and Monster of the Week. And Monster of the Week. And this isn't actually a Base Under Siege episode. Uh, and so I asked you, does this trope have a name? And you said, yes, it's called Doctor Who. <laughs> yeah. um, and I was like, you know, okay, fair enough, because it really does appear all the time. Yeah, I mean, I mean, the the big criticism of the Troughton era is that it's when Doctor Who started to become wedded to formulaicism. But both the concept of base under siege and monster of the week are attributed to the Troughton era. Right. And I don't mind those formats. I was just thinking, though, that actually, how much have I seen that? I'm trying to tease apart in my head, like, how much is it in New Who? That's exactly it. That's the question I'm asking. Because I sort of feel like it is, but not consistently, like... I mean, it registered to you as being... Right, right. Well, so the, the obvious one, as I say, is the Santarum stratagem, which is, of course, a unit story. So, you know, if mm. it, I really am beginning to really appreciate how much of that story is like a love letter to... That that was how it felt to me the first time I watched it. Is I was like, oh, this is this is classic Who done modern style, right? Um, but actually, I don't think Eccleston has any. Well, it's got a uh, Dalek, doesn't it? Yes. So yes, I suppose you do have Dalek, which has Henry Patton, evil industrialist. Although it's not got quite the same feel because he, although he is an industrialist, actually, it's it's his collection that's the focus. So yeah, you know, if, if he was a rich aristocrat. It would actually be the same episode in a sense, mm. um, and it's that element of industry that's you could view as being present in a, in the Slovene stories. But yeah, actually, but it's not. Um, it's not it, quite. It the is same. not. It's not quite the same. Um, obviously, Rise of the Cybermen and the Age of Steel. Uh, of course. Are... I mean, they they are kind of like a parallel take on the invasion. They feature industrial electromatics. So that yeah, very much feels like kind of a hard to it. But it's funny now looking actually, um having said this incidentally, I think that there's a number of episodes set in the further future which actually do has do have elements of this. Yeah, I think that elements is the word. New Who has all of the elements but doesn't necessarily frequently put all of them together as a single thing. 
Indeed, Daleks in Manhattan actually is right, and it has the sewers. They are a they are an explicit reference. Yeah, I hadn't quite appreciated the degree to which that must be true, but yeah, exactly. Right. Uh, Oh, there's the Lazarus experiment. That's a that's a fairly decent one. But it's still striking. Look at this. How 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 archetypal it feels, (laughs) but how little. Yeah. So I guess again, Cybermen, Army of Ghosts, Torchwood One is not quite the same thing, but it's like. A riff on the same thing. Right. Tortured One is like if Unit and IE were the same organisation. Right. Because Tortured One isn't an industrial company, but Yvonne Hartman runs it as if it was. Right. Which is very like New Labour, basically. Yeah. I mean, Yvonne's such a great character. Yeah, no, she is. She is great. Um... I suppose there's Partners in Crime. See, Partners in Crime is actually... It is it is riffing on it because it is deliberately making you think that's what it is. And then it subverts it because actually the person running the industry is herself the alien. Right, which I suppose it does do a bit more. I feel like Dr. Mysterio has it a bit. I feel like Moffat might have liked this trope a bit more. I don't know, Dr. Mysterio, again... It turns out that the company is actually just a front for the Harmony Show. Yeah, so maybe that's the thing that actually is more common in New Who, is companies just being a front for... Yeah, but maybe we wouldn't have got there without this cliché prior to it. Right. I think that, I think that might well be the case. I think New Who has also done a thing where the character who is a powerful human allying with forces beyond their control is more frequently now a politician. Yes. I think Chibnall likes it though, right? I mean, like, Arachnids in the UK is this. I mean, Jack Robertson is, like, this character. Jack Robertson is is this character made even more cliché. Right. I I think Chibnall, you're right, does, does do this more. Uh, like Kablam is this? Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of people criticise the uh, what you might call the incoherent politics of the Chibnall era. But actually, I would argue that that politics is present in the invasion because what people say is is well, you're criticising capitalism, sort of, but not really, and it's kind of a bit weird because it also feels like you're siding with the. But actually, that's exactly what the invasion does. I don't think the invasion has a political critique honestly no i don't think i don't think it does but i think chibnall is drawing on some of that heritage from who and because who has never actually been politically super coherent i I think like at this point they were introducing the idea of this recurring sort of contemporary plus one setting for practical and creative reasons and in the third doctor's era that's when they go hang on we've got a sci-fi mirror to society Let's give it a political kick. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it's quite interesting because Chibnall hasn't really used Unit, right? Well, Chibnall has defunded Unit in inverted commas. Indeed, he's defunded Unit, and actually, then the, the only I guess Spyfall is the episode where Unit kind of might have appeared, but actually, in that he goes to the head of like, actually MI6, yeah. right? Which is weird. Yeah, it is. Like the previous episode, he had GCHQ appear. You feel like he had to be deliberately clearing the boards of units. <laughs> Weird the other day, actually. This is not quite on the subject, but after the revolution of the Daleks, GCHQ tweeted about the episode. Oh, their Twitter yeah, account. that was weird. I-, I just find it a bit odd when you have, like, the UK Government Signals Intelligence Agency, like, going, ah, oh, we appeared in Doctor Who. 
It was very strange. It reminds me a little bit of the way Marvel movies have this kind of weird relationship with the US military. Yeah, and with Northrop Grumman. Oh, and in fact, in fact, do you know why there's so much real world military technology in the invasion? Oh, is it because it was in fact lent by the It was in fact lent by the military who collaborated with the production. And of course, it's a very positive portrayal of the military. Yes, Uh, and in fact, in the uh, final fight against the Cybermen, those are actual Coldstream guards. Excellent. That's really quite cool. <laughs> yeah, like, cool, maybe I mean, not cool, quite the word. But also a bit like, ah. Uh, I mean, it's kind of cool in a sense of like... It does give that groundedness to the near future unit recurring, this is Earth. Yeah, it it sells it very well. And it makes it grittier. It does. It's quite a gritty episode, actually. Yeah, I think this is the beginning of Who getting a little bit more violent and a little less comic book. I do, I do want to ask before we move on. So, um... Did they, has Doctor Who done that more, that sort of getting equipment and, and even personnel from the military? Yeah, the unit, uh, the Pertwee unit era episodes will do it a couple of times. The Sea Devils is a big one. Sure. And it, it's sort of, it's normal in modern TV to have like ex-military tech as your props. So you, it's sort of, it's sort of there in New Who as well. Well, ex-military is a bit different because I think, I think in some sense, I find the fact that it, that they had directly had some like military input and personnel on it and it's such a positive which would not be an, like culturally weird at the time yeah but just it's it's just quite interesting in a, in a context where i feel like people are more and more having the conversation about with something like the marvel movies about the way mm. in which marvel movies do this um and like whitewashing right because i mean we're moving into the doctor who era that was very establishment. Right, exactly. And I think we'll talk much more about that when we when we watch oh, absolutely. one of those perjury episodes about the relationship Probably between Doctor Who. Probably at some point we'll talk about the Silverians, which is the really interesting one. Is it? Yeah, it looks like it's home. And more now, so look. They're on a ballistic trajectory. How long before they'll be in range of your missiles? At this rate, a couple of minutes at the most, miss. Sam Peters? Sir. Where are we on countdown? T-minus 45 seconds, sir. Hold. I was thinking, actually, that um, because of the length of this, it's eight episodes, although, as we will discuss, I think two of them are missing. Um, but it's eight episodes. I mean, you put this together, you could edit this into a film. Yeah, that's, w- that's what I felt watching it, is I was like, this is like a big spy thriller. It has a lot in common with spy movies, and in particular, James Bond. Especially because the science fiction element, until maybe episode seven is no greater than some of the gadgetry in James Bond. And I feel like when you get to the Roger Moore era, then they're going to the Buddy Moon in the Space Rocket and stuff. Well, also, I mean, they have the they have the cyber clamor uh, that Vaughn talks to. Yeah, I mean, even that. Uh, I, I was actually listening because I could really see a Bond movie in which the villain is a AI at some point, just because those kind of anxieties are happening more and more in our society. It's got that extra bit of realism from the military technology. Th- things like the the minister being under control of the villain. The music is very Bond. Oh, yeah, yeah. The music, well, the music actually is superb, and I could say a lot more about that. It's, it's amazing. The casting was di- is like directly informed by Bond. Um, like Tobias Vaughn was inspired by the actor who played Blofeld, and and he and he is and Kevin Stoney who plays him is he's very Bond absolutely villain. like the epitome of a Bond villain. He I'm a, sort of in a sort of Bond style backstory originally scripted as literally an ex fascist. Um, Isabel as well, based on a character from a spy movie, not a Bond movie. 
Like, this is a spy movie. And what's interesting about that is it feels like a movie, not a TV serial. Yeah. Think about how the Mind Robber looked. And the Mind Robber looks cool and inventive, but think about how clearly it is being made episodically in a TV studio. Uh, Importantly about the Mind mind Robber, this follows directly on. Yeah, no, I think you're absolutely right. And, And even, yes, there are cliffhangers. But actually, I think those are not kind of integral to the structure. Yeah. Like, I think I think you could cut this into a movie. Yeah, you definitely it could. Take, it would take a bit of work, I'm sure. And I'm, it's not really my expertise, but I, I think you could do it. It has a size to it, which is what enables you yeah. to do that. Like, if you cut it together, but it looked stagey and small, it would feel like watching a TV show with the credits edited out. But this feels cinematic it feels really big yeah because there's a number of locations that they go to there's a lot of locations they 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 go to the corporate headquarters they go to the corporate base that they leave the tardis originally in a field and then return to the end which is really actually a really nice bookend why are they going to that field that's no idea now then where exactly did we leave it hmm uh you two try over there So talking about that grounded near future aspect, I like how bringing in the military technology for real, that gives it some of that realist take. It's comparable to what we were talking about a little on the Leisure Hive, where Christopher Bidmead came in and started editing and developing scripts to make references to contemporary cutting-edge science that Kit Peddler, who storylined this story and was a scientific advisor to the show, was doing a very similar thing here. So his near future is deliberately incorporating a lot of cutting-edge stuff. Well, I mean, the, the computer that at one point is outwitted yeah. by Zoe, is, is Zoe basically talks Algol at it. <laughs> yeah. Literally Algol. What she's doing is setting up a program. It's a non-terminating program, and as a result, it blows up the computer. But also, like, the idea... That computer itself is an automated answering machine that is maddening to deal with. Right, which sort of feels, like, very modern. Vaughn gives Jamie a transistor radio, like a pocket transistor radio. They were brand new at the time. The the Russian space rocket... That episode goes out... Oh, sorry, that episode went out on the same day as the Apollo 8 launch. Right, so it's it feels very... Uh, the the technology the Doctor puts together to block the Cybermen signal uses Neuristas, which were newly invented, only been around for a few years. And, and there isn't a great deal of depth to these things, but Kit Peddler was clearly thinking about grounding the science of this as a near-future Earth, in a similar thing to what Bidmead was doing with tachyonics and such in the Leisure Hive. Yeah, I think you're right. And it does have a certain various very similitude. Yeah, I I definitely feel like this is a really believable near future. Like, it feels like the fine details that are often missing in shows that feel just like comic book. Yeah, I mean... This is not a comic book future. Yeah, I actually think part of the strength of that is the characters and how well the characters are sketched. And I specifically want to talk about Isabel and Vaughn. So Isabel... We were introduced to her to say she's staying at 
Professor Watkins. It's actually Professor Watkins' niece. But she's a photographer, like, uh, and she's got a slightly eccentric air. She writes messages on the walls. She she is very much a feminist. Oh, yeah. Um, there, there's the bit where they decide to go to the sewers where they specifically criticise the brigadier for being anti-feminist. Yeah, he, he is basically quite chauvinist, as is Jamie. Yes, but I mean, I think the significance of what I'm saying there is that they're very... They use the exact phrase anti-feminist, and that wouldn't have even meant anything a few years earlier. Oh, wait, right. I see what you mean. Yeah, yeah they actually yeah, they specifically say you're anti-feminist. Uh, proof for Doctor Who uh, became too woke in <laughs> 1968. Um, no, um, but she, like, basically, she the what I really like is she instantly becomes friends with Zoe, basically because Zoe is glamorous, which means that basically Isabel's like, oh, can I take the photos of you? to model with because it's hard taking photos of myself yeah. and I can't afford I can't afford someone to model. So I feel like through the through this bits of dialogue and their kind of quickly formed friendship, um, you learn some things about Isabel, which is she's basically aspiring to be she was a model herself, but actually what she wants to really do is be a photographer and being a model gave her the money for her photography kit. She's actually she knows a lot about photography because she Right. It's her that says oh, you'd need this lens and that lens and this tech to be able to take photographs of the Cybermen in the sewers. Right, exactly. She absolutely knows her craft. Uh, and it, it is a continual story element. And this relates both to kind of the technical bit of the plot, but also sometimes I think companions and guest characters can form a connection, but without that, they're kind of forming a connection because they happen to be in the same place. Because the plot tells them to. It's a bit like the, the cliche of companions leaving because they've fallen in love with the character they met that episode. Right, precisely. Uh, and that doesn't happen here. But basically, the Doctor and Jamie go off to IE. But Zoe basically stays because she's she's enjoying modelling for Isabel. And that's kind of fun. But they then decide to go to IE themselves. They have quite a bit of agency in the story. And I thought that was really interesting. They both demonstrate that they really know their thing. Yeah, so both of them have moments where they are the expert in the story. Isabel with the photography and Zoe with dealing with the computers. Exactly, which Jamie doesn't have, actually, I think. No, J- Jamie's expertise is in hitting things. He is the party fighter. And getting into trouble. Jamie is also the moral support for the Doctor. Yeah, he is. I mean, I really like... Uh, you know, I'm really seeing why that relationship is so special. Yeah. Oh, he's just a good character. I like him because he feels flawed. I, I Just this, this serial, I think, was full of good characters. But I thought Isabel, for a character who could be almost quite throwaway, just I felt like I knew a lot about her life. Well, again, she was a character with an eye to making her a recurring figure. Yeah, yeah, I think that gives us a sort of extra... I think Douglas Camfield was a director who put a lot of thought into casting, and that really helps. Yeah, so I think Sally Faulkner, who plays her, she's just a really good cast. She's just a great... Fantastic. She feels very... To me, it felt very 60s, very kind of glam. To, to me, watching now, quite period, but I mean, at the time, must have felt very like, oh, wow. Douglas Canfield considered Isabel the most important role in casting. Uh, yeah, I, I think I think that's a, that is a fair thing. And actually, I would say the second most important, surely, is Tobias Vaughan, who is the villain of this, more of a villain, really, than the Cybermen, even though the Cybermen turn out to be the eventual baddies. And his, his goal is basically to rule the world 
he has essentially pseudo fascist beliefs about the world and he is certainly like and he needing a strong man to rule but like it's not that he wants to take over the world and kill everyone he's like i could rule it with my kind of strong guiding will so he's a megalomaniac which is i think why why the bond comparison is yeah. really very apposite right he he is a bond villain and he's just bloody marvelous just what a great figure and, and he you know he his his underling packer you know he's like he has his way of saying it packer, packer. like it's just oh our control over him is weakening well that could be dangerous if he doesn't obey your orders to come over here he oh, might go. he will packer he will He's got this eye injury. I think it's a bit like the the blowfed style, like eye scar, right? It's that, right, yes, which is, of it's, it, 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 and it is not a great trope that like de- villains have deformities. But it yeah. does actually. The thing here is, it's not. It doesn't look like a deformity, but it adds something to his expression. It gives him just this look. And Kevin Sony has this great face. Um, Vaughn is interesting because up to literally the point where he dies, he basically never gives up. He has a whole thing that's teaches teacher's like, I'm going to help you beat the Cybermen, but I want to make very clear it's not because I like you, I want to save the world or anything, because they've ruined my plan. Right, quite, quite often things go wrong and he gets set back and sometimes he gets angry about it. Quite often he doesn't, and he just kind of raises an eyebrow. And even when he gets angry, it doesn't feel like he's bothered. Like, he's like, he's angry, but he can sort it. And then at the very end, the, I think what's interesting about Vaughn is he plays very well, and it, it, like, it works really well because he's his puppet of the Cybermen, that his emotion, everything, everything, has this ironic twist of the lip and isn't genuine. And he finally, when you finally see the genuine emotion spill out of it, it's that he hates the Cybermen. He absolutely hates them, but he can't stop because he realises how far he's gone and he has to beat them now. Otherwise, he loses everything. Right, exactly. The other interesting about the character that I find fascinating is in recent Who history, you have the Master working with the Cybermen. But Vaughn is kind of like the Master, in the sense of some of the arrogant nature to his character the hypnotic element. He has this sort of force of will thing. Yeah. Where, like, when he's arguing with the, with the cyber planner, they basically go, this is what's going to happen. This is what's going to happen. And he's like, no, this is what's going to happen. And they'll go, do, 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 do. It is agreed. And yeah. like, he, he just, he browbeats people into doing what he wants. Literally, they'll say, but this. And then he's like, no, this. And they're like, of course, this. It's not quite hypnosis, but it has elements of it. I'll grant you that that, that part is master-like. I don't see him as very akin to the Master generally. I think that he is very distinctly a human burying his humanity under loads of aloofness and irony. Oh, absolutely. But there is a campness to that, or not quite He is maybe closest to the Roger Delgado Master, who we will be seeing soon. Right. But I suppose what I mean is I'm not saying that he is like the Master perfectly, but I'm just, I find it really interesting that because, of course, in the Purgatory era, which is going to be defined by units, also going to be defined by the Delgado Master, right? Yes, uh, absolutely. And I wonder how much the development of that character came... Like, like, I feel like the influence of Vaughn... It's not that the Master echoes throughout history and has an influence in Vaughn. It's I feel like there were elements of Vaughn that made their way into the master and then of course he became his own thing of the character and went in very different directions but i just find that super interesting one of the reasons i think vaughn works so well here again is that is the is the ironic twist that means that none of his emotion seems genuine and setting that against the cybermen 
well, eventually, obviously, the Doctor gets him on side in this scene where his hatred for the Cybermen spills over. And it's almost like even unlocking the genuineness of that hatred is something that allows him to be opposed to the Cybermen, like any genuine emotion, even what we would consider a negative one. But he, essentially, the Doctor notes the earlier on there's something strange about him, that he doesn't blink. Yes. That, that that scene is nonsense, but yes, that is great. And it turns out that although he looks human, he is mostly cyborg underneath, but he has refused total cyber conversion, essentially. Yes. And I, that says a lot, because if he was actually as emotionless as he tries to come off, he wouldn't have refused, right? Right. Actually, yeah. And there, there is a pride in what he wants to keep to be. And that, and that really almost is the, the fact that he has refused that is the proof that actually when it comes down to it, he's always, he wants to rule humanity with an iron fist. But actually, he, were, he was always going to pick. It's there was actually, no question. You know what it's reminding me of? Go on. The relationship that Mayon Tekka has to the Borad. Ah, aha. Yes. And there is something of the bald arrow. A bald arrow is much hammier. Yes. Although, although, like, literally, I've spent the whole of the last week just occasionally wandering around my flat going, Packer. Right. He is quite iconic. So, yeah, that the, the fact that he refuses full conversion is almost like the Chekhov's gun for the final reveal that he truly hates the Cybermen. Because if he didn't, if he wasn't actually disgusted and opposed to them, if if he was as aloof as he came across... Why wouldn't he pick... You know, you can imagine... You, you reference Santana Stratagem. You can imagine if this was Luke Rattigan, he'd be like, yeah, cyber me up. Right, and then he would regret it just as it was happening and then it would be too late. Yeah. And we, also, we, we'd mentioned Doomsday. Obviously, Yvonne Hartman becomes a Cyberman, a Cyberman, a Cyberwoman. No, Cyber not Cyberwoman. <laughs> no, we don't mention that. But also prior to the the final outburst with the Doctor, there's a fantastic scene where Professor Watkins confronts him. When he threatens Watkins of torture, you mean? Yeah, and what Watkins tells Vaughn how much he hates Vaughn. That he, he says he's too much of a coward to disobey Vaughn or go against him, but given half the chance he'd kill him and he he truly despises him, and then Vaughn gives him the gun, and he does shoot Vaughn. Obviously, Vaughn, having been cyborgified, is, is bulletproof. And he just stands there with this arrogant smile. But I, I think that as well is setting up this idea of, like, Vaughn's Achilles heel is genuineness. He He's still got emotions, but he is twisting them all up with this ironic, aloof stance. And finally, at the end... He he becomes a very brief ally to the Doctor because his genuine emotion, which is just hatred of the Cybermen, is unveiled. Appealing to my better nature. No. If I help you, it'll be because I hate them. The Cybermen. My allies. I, I felt like this story gave you a better sense of what the Troughton era was than the Mind Robber, which, as we remarked upon is an odd story for the era. Indeed. I see as I really liked I really liked the story, but I also really liked the characters. The Doctor is apart from his companions, but he also feels like an equal to them in other ways, and that's quite interesting. Yeah, I mean that's I think the big change from the Hartnell era. Right. So he doesn't feel like the imperious leader. And and it will change back with Pertwee, I think. Right. So I think it's a very, it's distinctive for this Doctor. And I, you know so I continue to really really like the second Doctor. So I I felt like when we did the Mind Robber, 
none of them made a very big impression on you. And then we watched The Five Doctors and that kind of sold it on Patrick Troughton. Yeah. But you didn't see any more Jamie and Zoe. And when we watched The Mind Robber, you, you didn't have a lot of feeling on either of them. And you didn't really like Zoe because you felt like she was a bit useless female character, bad writing. Yeah, so as I've already said, I really liked Isabel and Zoe gets a lot of good stuff with Isabel. This episode really sold me on Zoe as a character. The dynamic she has with Jamie, I think we saw a lot more. They don't make a lot of it, but Zoe is introduced in The Wheel in Space, another Cyberman story. Uh. And the reason Zoe is so good with computers is because her brain has been like specifically programmed by computer because that's what they do in the future. Huh. Uh, I didn't know that, but that makes sense. And that it's, and it, it even equally has thing. I am growing to adore Jamie. So, so it's interesting actually because there's a there's a thing about like male male friendship that we haven't seen on New Who mm. uh, as uh, between companions in it. Then like a non you know, like just guys being pa- pa- pals. Doesn't matter. You know what I mean? I think maybe it's most the most you've seen it in New Who is, is Smith it. and uh, Eleven and Rory. Oh, I was going to say uh, the Eleventh Doctor in the Lodger. I've forgotten the name of the character. James Carden's character. Yeah, yeah, I know who you mean. Yes, although the fact that he doesn't travel with the Doctor makes it not quite there. Yeah. So the point is, I we've not seen it lots in You Who, and actually, it's yeah. a really nice example of it here. Jamie is quite, I mean, as we see, probably of his time, show Scottish Highlander chauvinist, and then gets a good telling off from Zoe and Isabel. You know, the, the story isn't saying this is okay. You know, I feel that the story's on their side there. Yeah, yeah. But he does mean well. It's notable that he's portrayed as a bit of a fool, but there are usually moments where he is intuitively correct. Right, exactly. He he has a sort of wisdom of the common man sort of thing. There's a lot of stuff where it, where Zoe will be like, oh, really, Jamie? And then the Doctor will be like, oh, but hang on. I, I think played wrong, that can be sexist, right? Oh, yeah, yes. But I think... Because also Jamie is frequently shown to just be wrong. wrong. Right, right. So it's like, but some sometimes he has hits, sometimes he has misses. He feels very human. Like Fraser Hines' take on it has always been that Jamie is not a stupid person. He's just a person completely out of time. Yeah, that's the thing. He feels like a character. He feels like a real person from the era that he's from. And who therefore approaches the world in that... Right. Like, he feels like a contemporary contaminant who's not contemporary, if you see what I mean. Yeah. In the Highlanders, and when when he was in historical Scotland, he wasn't a fool to the people of that context. Right, because that's his context. And Fraser Hines says, like, sometimes he'd like raise an issue with a line in the script, he'd be like, but Jamie would know this, because there's no reason why this would be difficult for him. And also, Jamie sometimes has this gift of being able to simplify things down. Yes, he's he is. He feels like he's the closest to the audience viewpoint figure because yeah. Zoe is like Zoe is going to know more about computers than most people watch. Zoe is a bit like Romana in that she's actually quite alien as well. Yeah, oh, but and, and certainly for the contemporary viewer, they're not going to know much about computers, so she's got a slightly science fiction air to her. It's interesting that in this story, the Doctor spends so much time talking about how he hates computers. Yes, that feels very much like something that is of its time. Yeah. Yeah, it's just one of those things where it's like, oh, technology just has advanced a lot. Yeah, I think what he's really expressing is that he hates computers replacing humanity. Right. But at the time, like computers weren't commonplace, and so this was the big fear of computers, and that it didn't need that nuance at the time. And that's the anxiety that, of course, of makes the Cybermen relevant here, right? Who we haven't really talked about much. I love Cybermen so much. Ironically, because 
they're emotionless, but I adore them. Is this our first Cyberman story, I think? Apart from their cameo in The Five Doctors, where they mostly, like, troll the master. I I, I don't really... I mean, bless The Five Doctors, but I wouldn't say anyone appears in it. I do not believe your lies. So it's interesting. In this, I feel like Cyberman are not... They're kind of mostly generic villains. I feel like many of the themes of the Cybermen aren't super present, apart from we're actually with Vaughn and with his interactions with the Cyber Director. Yeah, because I mean, I was about to say, I don't think that sits with what I've just been saying, which is that Vaughn... Right, it comes out with Vaughn. Like, the Cybermen themselves, I mean, they only really appear in two episodes and bits of two more, but it's it's what the Cybermen are that contextualises Vaughn yeah, I have, so I absolutely agree with that. I just thought it was really interesting that actually the Cybermen themselves, you know, they they are kind of lumbering villains in this, but their core thematic strength shines through. Well, this is how I think Cybermen have always worked the best. That actually, the man in a suit who kills you is almost immaterial, but it is the presence or the threat of them and how that affects humans which is what makes cybermen thrilling yes the distinctive thing about cybermen as villains is their specifically their relationship to humanity and the way they are kind of a reflection of us and a philosophy a a philosophy taken to its extreme conclusion and they kind of hold up a dark mirror or dark water or whatever you like to us um in a way that the daleks never really can the daleks fulfill a very different kind of dramatic role i mean Absolutely a genius move to have the origin of the Cybermen not be an alien race, but to literally be a duplicate Earth and duplicate humans. Right, right, exactly. And it feels like that thread runs through them. It's essential to them. So previous to this episode, there's been quite a few Cyberman stories. Almost all with Patrick Troughton, because obviously the 10th planet was William Hartnell's final story. But they are a huge part of the Troughton era. When when they were revealed as being in this story, there, there were complaints about oh, another Cyberman story. Because, again, fandom never changes. Right. The big Cyberman story of the Troughton era that people talk about a lot is Tomb of the Cybermen. Um, which is where you see the earlier design. But I wanted to do this one because of all the unit stuff in it, and also because Tomb of the Cyberman has a very racist character in it. Oh, yeah, I heard about that. Tomb of the Cybermen, again, though, is a story that wrings efficacy out of the Cybermen by not having them appear for half of the story and going, hey, look, Cybermen are around, and then looking at what that does to the humans. Right. Uh, It's almost like humans can't help but react to to the existence of Cybermen. Like, their existence shapes the story. We've also had several stories where the temptation of the Cybermen causes humans to cyber-convert themselves. Right, exactly. Um, And they've got a fairly classic design here. Well, this this is the origin of this design, which will become kind of the template for all Cybermen thereafter. Right. It's really interesting that the Cybermen really took a while to develop. The Daleks pretty much have had a fairly stable... Right, uh... yeah. And the Sontarans not really ever changed. Even the Ice Warriors, when the Ice Warriors came back in New Who, they were barely changed. In terms of iconic baddies, the Cybermen don't have a single distinct look like the others. Right. Right, uh, which of course makes sense because of what they are. Yeah, yeah, it works in their favour. That, 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 that wonderful notion in uh, The Doctor Falls that 
it's the Cybermen, and they always turn up. They always keep happening, not because there's one place they originated from, but because actually they originate from all places. They are a constant mistake or path that humanity goes down. I knew who was also associated them with this idea of upgrading, of constant development of not being able to sit in stasis right i think they've really benefited from the fact that between 1988 and 2005 we had like at least one maybe two technological eras yeah you know a lot of the language that's used in the age of steel for instance yeah is very, well some of it is very uh mid-noughties yeah yeah it's very dated <laughs> now yeah it looks dated but uh, no, no, I don't mean in looks. I mean in its references to contemporary technology, it's dated. Right. Like a, a big part of it is this riff on Bluetooth headsets. Right. Almost there was a not quite a moral panic about them, but there was like this in the way that you in modern times might have done, not really now to be honest, but like with smartphones or something like that. Yeah. Or Wi-Fi and the Bells of St. John or something like that. And I think also the way that they keep talking about upgrade and delete is essentially the mid-2000s equivalent of the megabyte modem in Trial of a Time Lord. Right, they're just sort of saying words that feel science-y. Th- these are science buzzwords, we're going to use them. But actually, unlike the stuff that they, as you say, they do in the Invasion or the Leisure Hive, which actually feels very relevantly technologically connected. Yeah. Okay, yeah, the Algol's a bit dodged, but because it sort of feels set in the past future, if you like. Yeah, well, I mean, the cyber control signal is going to be distributed through miniaturised circuitry in modern transistor electronics. Like, that's an accurate yeah. vision of the early 70s. Yeah, no, absolutely. It's not trying to be now. I feel like one of the riskiest things in sci-fi is doing something that's like 50 years away. Yeah. Because you're just going to get that wrong. Yeah. But it's also quite likely that people will still be watching your show. <laughs> yes. <laughs> at that time. I mean, Doctor Who has, has fallen to this. I think a lot of things have. You know, the year 2021 is now this year. The most precious thing on this earth is the human brain, and yet we allow it to die. But now, Cybus Industries has perfected a way of sustaining the brain indefinitely within a cradle of copyrighted chemicals. And the latest advances in Synapse research allows cyberkinetic impulses to be bonded onto a metal exoskeleton. This is the ultimate upgrade, our greatest step into cyberspace. When the uh, the promo picture of Capaldi with the 10th Planet Cybermen, slightly updated, but only slightly updated 10th Planet Cybermen that featured in The Doctor Falls... When that first promo image came out and I first saw it whilst I was talking to one of my friends and I just went, oh, they are beautiful. And my friend was like, beautiful isn't the word I would use. <laughs> uh, okay, why do you love the Cyberman flick? So it's, it's very hard to pin down when you try exactly what the spirit of Doctor Who is, although I feel like we've got close in several discussions, but without actually saying what I think it is or nailing it down, because that might be a mistake, I believe that the core of what the Cybermen are is the direct antithesis of the core of what the Doctor is. Expand? Well, now, now, now I've got to do the difficult bit. Yeah. Right, so the Daleks, you know, are a creature bred full of hate, and they hate and they just want to dominate everything, and etc., etc., etc. Okay, the antithesis of that isn't the Doctor... Because in a sense, you know, the Doctor has parallels with the Dalek, and we played on that, you know, yeah, you would make a good Dalek, etc., etc. Mm-hmm. The Cybermen would never tell the Doctor he'd make a good Cyberman, because he wouldn't, right? The, there is, at the core, the entire philosophy of the Cybermen is based on 
first principles of survival first, progress good in all circumstances, emotions are irrational, logic overall. And the first principles of the Doctor are being human is good for its own sake. Emotions are valuable even when they are negative or damaging. Everything has its time and everything dies. And these are these are not reducible. These aren't things where you can make an argument for one is more logically coherent than the other. The philosophy of the Cybermen is very logically derived from first principles that are essentially arbitrarily chosen. Right, but actually they do follow from those principles. But they but they are they are a perfect progress from that. And the only the only argument is I refute your first principles because they are not my beliefs. You can't say, hang on, there's a contradiction here because because we're talking about very first principles. In contrast to the Daleks, who quite frankly get themselves into knots all the time. Yeah, the, Dalek, the Daleks constantly run into the fact that actually their beliefs just don't make sense. Like not in a not in a badly written story way. Just that their ideology is actually more incoherent than they want. And whenever they run into an incoherency in that ideology, it causes them a crisis. But but if you just sort of ask why of a Cyberman again and again and again, eventually you'll reach the bottom of the stack and you won't have got a contradiction on the way down and if you do the same to the doctor well actually i think you probably would run into contradictions but setting that aside if you kept asking why of the doctor to what he believed in and you got to the bottom of that stack you would have the exact opposite of what you got from the cybermen that's really interesting yeah so so i love the cybermen i think that they are the perfect enemy for the doctor and the daleks in a sense also are but the cybermen more so. I, I actually, I, I really like them. And I think it's, you know, I, I fear that New Who has started to use them a bit too much, but I'm not sure has always used them well. I, I, I don't think the Cybermen have been well used since the 1960s. And actually, this, is, this isn't this is an orthodox position. This is quite a commonly held position. So, uh, hmm, that means almost I've seen never no good. I, 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 I like them in the Age of Steel. And I like them in World Enough and Time and the Doctor Falls. Okay, so World Enough and Time and the Doctor Falls is perfect. It's the right. one time that New Who has got them exactly right. Right. And how do you feel about them in Age of Steel? I like them in other stories. I just feel that all the other stories, I have parts where I'm like, oh, that doesn't quite make sense. In the Age of Steel, my issue is that the constant delete, delete thing. That's not the Cybermen. Right, no, I, I, and I, I, I would agree with that, I think. It's homogenising them with the Daleks. Yeah, and we want the kids to say it around the playground sort yeah. of thing. And, um, and it's like, you make a talking action figure that says it, whatever. Right, it's, it's, and they're very action figurable. One thing that they do tend to get right more often than not, and this, in a sense... I think the fact that some aspects are easy to get right is why other aspects end up getting not done well because they get forgotten. Mm -hmm. But one thing that is, I think, easy to do right is the horror, not the thematic horror, but just the straight up sort of physical horror of them. Almost every story has one good conversion reveal moment. Right, right. In, In this one, it's the moment when, you know, all through the story, Vaughn is going... Packer, and he appears on the TV screen to take his orders, and then the, the, Vaughn's wondering where Packer has got to, and you know, Packer, and just a Cyberman face appears on the screen instead. Yes, yes, tragic. 
I think there's a visceral horror to that, right? Like, it's not an intellectual, philosophical one, it's just that... Yeah, I mean, the reason it's so horrific is it taps into how anathema, cyberman are human existence, which is ironic because they're all about survival and preservation of humanity. Right, and so the question is, what is... They ask questions like, what is a human? Which is one reason I think they, they pair up quite well against unit and military figures, actually, because you can always ask questions like, you know, what are we willing to change what are we willing to do to survive i think the daleks are better for that and the reason i think the daleks are better for that is because it is too easy and it starts to happen right here in the invasion to militarize the cybermen to turn them into power armored warriors right got you when in fact what they are is dying people in elaborate hazmat icu suits which you absolutely get from the 10th planet Oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. But they've turned into Iron Man. And and pitting them in armies against the military leads to that. I, yeah, I, I, I agree. I think it was good here because it was new and unique. Uh-huh. And it's an interesting parallel to the Dalek invasion of Earth, which did the same for the Daleks, but that was very much Daleks up front, whereas this does it like, hold them back, hold them back, hold them back. And they don't go for a big old romp until episode seven. And then they go literally down the steps of St. Paul. And, and then they're everywhere. And if they'd had more time, you'd have seen them in even more locations. I do think the steps of St. Paul is a good thematic moment. I can't it's quite great. put my finger on why, but if you're going to pick a landmark, there's something about St. Paul's. That... Like, it, it, it is the equivalent of the Daleks on London Bridge. Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. This is as iconic as that. I, I really, I really like them. They are probably. I don't think I have the depth. Of, I don't have the depth of love for them that you have, but I do really like them. Uh, they're probably one of, if not my favourite villain. Yeah, they're like my favourite thing in all of Doctor Who. One of the reasons I was interested to do the invasion, which I mentioned to you, was that when I first got into Doctor Who fandom, this was one of the most discussed, like really held up as an iconic, one of the best Doctor Who stories of all time, right in there in the the classic, if I dare use the phrase, canon of the show. Um, Like, as I mentioned, Tobias Vaughan comes back in one of the Virgin New Adventures, and and that's a no-brainer when that novel came out. Of course he did. He's one of the most iconic villains in the show. And I just don't think that's true anymore. I don't really hear this story discussed anymore. Everybody talks about Tomb of the Cybermen still. Which is a big shame, because I think I've said it, but just brought it on me really clear. I, clear, I really loved it. I, you know, I think the core thing is, this was a really fun... Sometimes, I was really worried. We, we know that I found Genesis the Daleks sort of sacked mm. in the middle. Right. And I, it, it's a concern I had when we started this project, which was that the very serial nature of old Who, of classic Who, would, I, was to me something I would struggle to engage with. But this just was not the case of the invasion at all. It, it, I, I actually couldn't wait to watch each next episode. Um, and actually, I thought, oh, wow, how cool would it have been to see this every 25, like 25 minutes for like eight weeks? Yeah, like, this is Doctor Who. I, I thought it was really bad to appreciate the degree to which, like, almost it feels like each serial is like a little mini series. Oh, I don't think you. I don't think I felt that with the Mind Robber at all. But right. This felt like it just had a. I remember say I I said that to was it you I was saying that to recently. I don't think so. Oh, I, it was you. But I was talking specifically about the War Games, and I said that it's essentially like 
uh, a mini series in its own right. Right. And I and actually I was saying that because I was trying to sell you on the idea that these long black and white stories didn't require the degree of trepidation I sensed you feeling. Right. Exactly, and, and that and that, that was exactly the case that I just thought, and, and especially because this one had missing episodes, I think you were a bit like, "Oh God!" Right, and actually, I really loved it, even despite the fact that two episodes are missing. Yeah, uh, and partially that's because I'll be honest, I really like the animation. It's obviously not like the most detailed animation in the world, but almost for me that makes it work. It reminded me a little bit of the TV show Archer. It's by Cosgrove Hall, who you might be more famous with for. Danger Mouse and Duckula, huh? Who right. also did Scream of the Shalker? Huh? I can see Scream of the Shalker in this actually. So the lost episodes, obviously, we did the Feast of Stephen already, but for people who don't know the full story, the BBC kept tapes and films in two separate departments. Neither of them considered archival concerns part of their purview, and so both of them, when space got short or they needed tapes again. They, they wiped what they had, and both of them knew that there was another department that also held copies, and so they didn't really think anything of it. Right. Luckily, because so many episodes have been sold into syndication overseas, over time, a lot of those things have been returned to us, and we've been able to put back a lot of the archive. But the Troughton era, in particular, suffered really badly. There are very few serials that are completely intact. Some of them, there are telesnaps, which are fixed photos taken off the screen. And for every story, we have at least got the soundtrack, not just the music, but literally the full audio. And the interesting thing about all this is that we very rarely didn't have the soundtracks, right? Because actually, the capacity to tape, to do it at home, that only came out within a year of Doctor Who? Yeah, audio cassettes were about a year old. One year the other way, and we'd have lost all of some things. Which is pretty incredible, really. Because there are so many other shows from that time that are just incomplete, and we have nothing of some of them. But for Doctor Who, that isn't the case. There is at least some form of the story for every episode. Home taping may have killed music, but it saved Doctor Who. But that so that's the context behind why these episodes, if you don't know, have animated inserts. It as the Cybermen would say, they have been deleted. <laughs> now I remembered that I hated the animation. And this time round I was like, oh actually, yeah, it's fine. it's fine. You know, it's not that bad. It's nowhere near as bad as I thought it was. Well for me I, I actually liked it. I'm glad that I had the film stuff. But actually, the funny thing is, because episode one and episode four, I think, are the missing ones. One and three. One and three, sorry. Uh, episode one, I watched it and it's animated. And I was like, oh, this is really good. And I almost was like, oh, actually, I don't know how good the film stuff is going to be. And actually, that was super good. <laughs> uh, like, nice camera work. But I, I genuinely liked the animation. It wasn't a barrier for me at all. It was pretty good. So there, I mean, there have been several more animations since. And they've grown into this was the first one. Um, way back in 2006 now, I've not actually watched any of the subsequent animations, I will confess. And maybe after watching this, I will give them another go. But for me, irrespective of the quality of the animation... Okay, first of all, it should be mentioned that I listen to so much audiobook and audio drama content, like more than any human is meant to. If anyone is calibrated to be able to listen to narrated soundtracks recorded off-air like we went with for The Feast of Stephen, it's me. Well, as we've discussed off-podcast, you have a brain that's actually been built to process Doctor Who itself. I, I have, in fact, been 
converted. I am actually just a big contraption of glass tubes uh, behind a rotating wall in an industrialist's office. I mean, it would be a good look for you. But so, in in that respect, maybe it's no surprise that the narrated soundtracks just work better for me. But I don't think it's purely a case of what I'm used to processing. I think for me, the sticking point is that the animation is replacing something. And I know that that's happening. If I listen to the narrated soundtrack, things are missing, but nothing is standing in for what is missing. And when I watch the animated episodes, then I'm seeing visuals standing in for the previous visuals. Ah, but your brain is also trying to construct the actual visuals and they may not match up, which I imagine must be quite difficult. Right. If I listen to the narrated soundtrack, everything I'm getting is authentic and I can visualise in my head what it looked like and it, it won't actually be what it looked like. I don't have like a psychic hotline to the actual lost visuals as far as we know. But the animation doesn't allow that. The animation goes, this is the visuals to the story, and then presents visuals that that weren't the visuals to the story. And I know that they weren't, and I find that gap hard to jump. And I think I might find it even harder with the recent animations that are in colour. Yeah, so the co- watching these episodes in colour would, would really bother me, actually. I would... now, so the most recent one is um, Fury from the Deep. So you can, like it's it's a lot more sophisticated animation. Oh yeah, but I like it a lot less. So the reason that you say you like it a lot less is probably I feel like the same reason that I struggle with the animation full stop. And that it gives you too much. Yeah, I, I think that's it for me. It just gives me it. You know, it gives you too much. And I I guess also the animation for most people. It's not that they don't necessarily have that issue. Maybe they still do have the issue. I imagine everyone has it to some degree with anything that's not the the actual original footage. But also they don't have the degree to which my ear has been trained to listen to a soundtrack. Yes, that's very true. So, all in all, love this episode. Wasn't the slog that I was kind of afraid it might be. I'm, yeah, I'm really glad that that was your response to it because... Let's be honest, you're going to have to do it again. Yeah, and again. And, and I'm sure there will be episodes that are more of a slog. But this one, it's a real gem. I feel like I want to start giving, like, a hot or not. Like, like, because so often I find it hard to rate Doctor Who. But I can basically say, yeah, this is good. Or, yeah, I'd give this a miss. Yeah, yeah. And this one, it's a thumbs up from me. Cool. I think I liked it more this time than the first time. This time it was like, oh, I'm watching a really good Bond movie. Except instead of Bond, it's the Doctor. And I like the Doctor a lot more than I like James Bond. Uh, I'm more of a Bond movie than Spyfall, perhaps. Spyfall. <gasps> that, that episode was really missing a sort of Bond song pastiche, wasn't it? <laughs> I'm so glad that you mentioned that. Oh, no. You set it up perfectly. What, what, what have you done? Do you know what else Fraser Hines brought out, as well as the invasion at the same time? N- no. A novelty Doctor Who song. Uh-huh. Have a listen. Uh... Pretty hard rocking, to be honest. <laughs> He has a time machine 
to travel through the ages. This is really bad. It's very sixties, right? He simply turns the pages. Just a check, you expect me to listen to the whole thing? No, but I, I at least wanted you to get to the chorus. Uh, yeah, I've got to the chorus, that is, that is, that is pretty rocking. Where was he from? <laughs> what does he do? Wow. I mean, it's... Um... Oh, man. Good to know that fandom has been cringe since the 1960s. Right, well, thank you for that. So, so there you go. There, there, there's your uh, that isn't the, the Bond doc- theme. That isn't, the that isn't what I wanted. Um, any final thoughts? There's a feature on the DVD about um, how they went about making the helmets for the Cybermen. Really? Yeah, it's riveting. That was a really annoyingly good delivery. <laughs> <laughs> Next time. We're going to be looking at a William Hartnell episode. It's a long time since we've done one of these. We said, well, we, t- we touched on him at Christmas, but very fleetingly. Well, we we touched him at Christmas, but briefly, and that was a... We shared a toast. We shared a Christmas toast. We, we shared a Christmas toast with him, and, and the first Doctor appears in a form... Yeah, I mean, te- technically speaking, this will be the fourth first Doctor story we've done, but it's and really yes, not. Exactly, and uh, you might not have listened to that first episode, and the sound quality is quite bad. We also only had like terrible mics. We've upgraded. We have we have upgraded. Upgrade. Um, and we are looking at the Aztecs, which is a serial I don't know much about. Uh, can I say what I already know about it? Yeah. I know that it has an element of history as fixed points. Yeah. I am worried that a show made in the sixties depicting the Aztecs is going to be at best insensitive and at worst racist. Yeah. I don't know anything about how long it is or how many missing episodes there are or really anything else about the story. Only four episodes. None of them are missing. I am not sure I'm going to love this one, but... So it is one of the most popular William Hartnell stories. Right. It is, in fact, one of the most popular Doctor Who stories in fandom. Okay. We will discuss it more next time, but thank you very much. I have been Renner. And I have been Flick. And this has been Relative Digressions. Thanks for listening to Relative Digressions. You can find us on Twitter at Who Digressions. The music is Sonic 1.0 by Sonic, S-O-N-N-I-K, and this is a production by Renner Robson and Felicia Parker. We'll be back in the future. Whoop, 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 wh